I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest today is Azadeh Moaveni, who works at the International Crisis Group. Her most recent book is Guest House for Young Widows, about women who joined Islamic State. She has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on the crisis at the Poland-Ukraine border. Hello, Azadeh, and thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. As you say at the beginning of your piece, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has led to the largest and swiftest mass movement of women since the Second World War that more than 4 million have fled the country and as many are internally displaced. But whether it is safer out of the country is far from clear. And Ukrainian refugee women and children are vulnerable to many kinds of exploitation, as you make clear in the piece, and the UN calls it a protection crisis of vast proportions. So what is or what are the, the biggest risks facing them? The biggest immediate risk, and this is something that volunteers noticed immediately when they began showing up at the border to help bring refugees uh, into the cities of Poland, is kidnapping and trafficking. Journalists that I spoke to who were at the border the very first days mentioned that they immediately began to see men on their own, sort of suspicious looking men and that they weren't with families or that they, you know, looked like they were lurking. So, the possibility that, and, and this is a small sort of minority, of course, because the volunteer response was absolutely crucial to being able to manage this vast flow. You know, on some days, 140,000, mostly women and children, were crossing the border. But there were kid instances of kidnapping in, in the earliest days. Uh, trafficking tends to be um, sort of more online, but this was such an opportunity for those trafficking networks to be able to go around the usual uh, obstacles that they face and then just show up at these borders. Um, so that was a big, big fear as well. And there have been, you know, many, many instances of uh, young girls or women who sort of have popped up in, in cases that police are investigating for trafficking. So those are the the immediate security fears. And of course, those are you know, criminal activity. And then I think the second order threat that they face is forced labor exploitation, um, you know, competing for work in places where they're in Poland is not a great deal of work, especially for women. The kind of jobs that are available in Poland tend not to be jobs that women um, can do. There's a lot of uh, construction work, etc. Um, so forced labor or having to work for very, very low wages, the risk of uh, finding shelter somewhere, um, 
there was a case that I was told about of, of a family that was staying with a man who had orchards and he took away their their documents and their passports. So they they were safe in that they had a place to stay, but they were being obliged to work and their freedom of movement had been taken away. So it's a sort of spectrum of of, of risks and dangers that goes from, you know, the the worst case, criminal abduction, trafficking, uh, and then, you know, we can of course talk about trafficking more because it's it's quite complex but then the sort of survival sex exploitation uh forced labor uh that is sort of secondary yeah, because I suppose that, that question about of trafficking to what i suppose what does it mean what does it involve is it being kidnapped and forced into becoming sex workers well the majority of women who are trafficked girls and women who are trafficked do end up being trafficked for the purpose of sex work. It's certainly the majority of cases, you know, over 70%. But trafficking has really changed in, in recent years. It's it's quite hard to to traffic women in the way that we still see in on television and in films, you know, women being sort of thrown into the backs of trucks and 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 taken away and, and held against their will at gunpoint. Um, it's much more now because the access to mobile phones is is so widespread, and and even sort of women who are being trafficked, you know, will tend not to not have access to anything like that. Physically coercing a woman with the aim of trafficking is is something that's really, according to trafficking groups and researchers, declined. So the way that it, it happens now is that um, a woman who is seen as vulnerable, and that's really the ideal case, is that groups target and identify women who are much more likely to be able to be emotionally and socially manipulated into uh, a deeply sort of power imbalanced relationship where they can be exploited and manipulated, but they're not physically, you know, trying to get away. So it does mean, you know, eventually, and, and the most dangerous cases are when women are taken out of Europe, out of the U.S. and, and into places where trafficking provisions and, and anti-trafficking sort of detection systems are, are much less prevalent. So being trafficked to the Middle East, being trafficked to Africa, and then being obliged, you know, yes, to, to work, to do sex work or, or other kinds of forms of exploitation. So that is the end of it. But the way that it happens um, is much more more manipulated and much more through a sort of forced a sort of coer it is coercive but sort of getting the victim to be eventually voluntarily submitting to their coercion and in the piece you talk about the use of of, of dating apps and of, of tinder and so on as a way to trap people so social media apparently was a massive boon for the human trafficking industry because it suddenly took this wealth of personal information about women and girls that or or you know even men who would be trafficked and sort of put it in the semi-public or public realm so traffickers that wanted to find women as I said who had that kind of suitable vulnerable profile and um, you know one of the real concerns about trafficking in Poland right now of Ukrainian women is unaccompanied minor girls you know who are teenagers who are maybe traveling with aunts or grandparents who are not with their immediate parents um, who are who are quite lonely who are very dislocated who are maybe living with you know a, a family or relative who's very busy with the work of just kind of dealing with their registration number so they can get health care and, and some money to be able to live. 
And those teenagers uh, are are very vulnerable to being spotted online. So that process and in the sort of trafficking research world, it's called hunting. So when you spot a teenager who's posting on Instagram kind of morose messages uh, about being alone a lot of time or bored, you know, that is from the, the point of view of the trafficker, like a very attractive target to then start working on and cultivating an online friendship, messaging at first, you know, having messages on Instagram or, or even in groups, you know, telegram groups that are, you know, perhaps seem about, you know, something at the beginning, but then that person is sort of broken out of the group and a one-on-one relationship begins. Um, So all of these apps um, and these social media platforms are really rife with this kind of activity. And, um, you know, they, sort of acknowledge it themselves and and say that, you know, trafficking is something that they're working to to deal with. Um, but it has really transformed the potential for for trafficking. Um, I think that's something I certainly wasn't aware of, the extent to which it's kind of turned trafficking, both changed how it works and, and the scope of it. And has it made it worse? I mean, simply in terms of numbers, does anybody, I mean, presumably people, researchers aren't estimating these things how many women and teenagers are thought to have gone missing from who have have crossed from ukraine into poland and then fallen off the radar presumably trafficked what sort of numbers are we talking about um it's very very difficult to estimate those numbers because to to classify something as as trafficking requires um a very sort of it has a very tight definitional framework But I think we can say that trafficking groups are investigating and have reported dozens of cases of of trafficking in in the European countries that uh, Ukrainian women are traveling to and from. There was a case of of teenagers being sold in Spain to Ukrainians. Uh, There appears to be, you know, a handful of cases in Mexico where Ukrainian women believe that they can cross into the U.S. more easily if they go through a land border. But there's also um, the reporting on trafficking. Different countries report their trafficking numbers very differently. Some won't report cases of suspected trafficking, even though trafficking researchers believe that that must be part of the number because it's so hard to actually, in, in many instances, ascertain whether, if the person sort of disappears off the map, whether they were trafficked. So actually, it's a very muddy space to be able to to gauge trafficking numbers even in non-conflict situations when you don't have four million women kind of moving across Europe uh, in in very vulnerable positions. So some European countries will appear to have very, very high trafficking rates. Like the UK has, if you look at it in a European context, an extremely high number of trafficking victims and sort of prosecutions for trafficking. Uh, But that's because it reports differently than, for example, Spain, which is believed to have a significant sort of trafficking pattern across it, not least because of its proximity to North Africa, but it doesn't report, for example, suspected cases. So I, I realize I'm getting quite technical, um, but to, to gauge it, no, you sort of have fine to... Because, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can get the sense that it's the, it's such the, the thing to be frightened of, and is it is it as, as prevalent as, as it appears to be? But you know, clearly it is. No, it, it, it certainly is. And, and because it's gone so online, uh, the prevention mechanisms and work on anti-trafficking work has gotten that much harder. It's sort of 
I think, to the point where um, trafficking groups try and pose as, you know, potential, you know, they, they pose in, in sort of hidden ways in places where traffickers might lurk. But they've sort of shifted to an approach of just putting out information online to the extent that they can so that even, you know, if women are trafficked, they know how to to get help or to to understand that what's happening to them, you know, is is a form of trafficking. So and you describe in the in, in the piece the um, the organization women take the wheel for example so there have there are efforts taking place on on the border to prevent it yes um that was a polish woman from um from warsaw who had driven down to the medica border crossing that i write about uh in in the early days and she and it was very very cold then um and there weren't really even shelters set up for these you know for for women to and their children and and some men of course to to be able to shelter from the cold but they weren't getting into cars and at that point there was no police registration for private cars so and there weren't sort of big evacuation buses set up so it was very ad hoc you know there would be a bus but then there would just be you know people individuals there with their cars often men offering rides and she saw that women were frightened to get into cars with men and she filled her car you know she had four seats and took a group of women all the way to Warsaw and then that night she posted on Facebook about it that you know this is a war where the men have to make the soup and the women have to take the wheel because of the nature of of who was who was leaving you know because of course men cannot leave Ukraine if they're between the ages of 18 and 65 because of of forced conscription uh, so she had a, a sort of barrage of, of responses to her Facebook post and women from all over the world, even um, not just not just Poland, but first Poland said, we'll help. We'll be those drivers. We'll we'll take the wheel. And so eventually she sort of set up a whole network uh, and now runs several hundred women drivers who volunteer to go to wherever the, you know, there are eight border crossings um, and to even do sort of trips, you know, within Poland, women are going back. Um, that's something, you know, I mentioned that women are going back in pretty large numbers as well. Um, so she just has this network of women who can drive other women and, and sort of, especially when it's hard for border guards to even screen and detect women who are coming across the border who may have experienced rape, sexual violence, who are in, in a really bad way because of quite extreme things that might have happened to them. So the need to have a private car, a safe car driven by a woman, actually, you know, beyond simply the security and the comfort level is super necessary simply for also those cases, which will present as, you know, preferring to have a private car with a woman. But often, you know, that might be because of a very specific uh, circumstance like that. And of course, that question leads on to another thing that you write about in the piece, that there are threats from, from criminals, but there are problems in Poland particularly for rape victims in that the Poland has very strict abortion laws and that clearly is, presents a large problem for, for some of the women who are, who are fleeing terrible things that have happened to them in, in Ukraine. Yes, so I think many Ukrainian women simply had no idea that they were passing into a country that had such laws. You know, Ukraine has quite, you know, available and and advanced to the extent that that you know it is it is anywhere you know access to both medical abortion and um you know abortion pills emergency contraception reproductive health there is is very solid 
So when different women's groups, trafficking groups, you know, all these groups in Poland sort of surged to help the government be able to handle the response. So many of them were just, you know, groups that worked on other things and just jumped into this to be able to help. They started having calls of from women who had had who had experienced sexual gender-based violence of some kind, some of it, you know, the the kind of worst cases that the Ukrainian uh, Human Rights Commissioner talks about, you know, by, by soldiers. I think we've heard some accounts of that in Bucha. So I think in, in the early weeks, women simply didn't know that Ukrainian women coming into Poland simply didn't know that they would face this quite restrictive and contorted system. But these groups mobilized quite remarkably to to connect up women who needed these kinds of pills, who needed to be able to access abortions through partners that they work with in, in Europe um, while sort of staying on the right side of Polish law. And, and the timing of it was quite extraordinary and chilling. But, you know, the week that I arrived in Poland, so the maybe two months into the, the, the war and the refugee crisis, Poland began a trial prosecuting the first activist, the first trial of its kind, for helping a woman try and access uh, an abortion. Uh, so the scale of what groups were reporting that, that they were needing to help women with was, was a few hundred cases, and, and, and each group responds to, to different women. So um, it, it wasn't small, uh, and, and some of those were in contexts where women had, had experienced rape. But as as time progressed and news spread and, and sort of the experience of being in Poland for Ukrainian women circulated, and as reports also, you know, evidence, testimony or, or witness accounts of, of the worst kind of rapes began to kind of develop more, I think the trend moved away from even coming into Poland, that, you know, keeping women in Kiev, making sure that they had access to the kind of medical care and the reproductive care that interventions that they needed, and then maybe finding a way for them to leave afterwards. Uh, but Kiev actually kind of remained or, or became like a, the frontline place to deal with women who had been who had been raped just because Poland, you know, not only uh, reproductive access to, you know, emergency contraception, which is also very complicated, but even the evidence collection, the sort of trauma care, like it is not a very evolved system for dealing with women who have been raped at all, let alone, you know, in, in circumstances of war. And you visited a number of refugee centres when you were there. And obviously there was quite a wide range of them, of, of experience of people in them that, for example, one that I think um, Rubyashov seemed quite relatively safe, secure, peaceful, relatively well run. And then the one uh, at Nadazin, is that right? Outside Warsaw, where people would say they would never send anyone there because conditions were so terrible. It was shocking to me, the range of the conditions in these places. And I suppose that reflects the really haphazard, uh, fragmented nature of the government response in, in Poland. Um, first, many local authorities tried to step up to, to deal with the numbers of people who were coming through. So mayors, local councils, with help from volunteers and, and local groups. And then slowly, slowly, you know, at, at the sort of province level, or especially, you know, by, by Easter, when I was there, you know, it was the government was really trying to take over the response uh, from 
civil society and, and groups like that. So that's sort of part of it, the kind of Polish domestic politics aspect of it, because in, in the care of refugees or in places where you're tending to them, if you tend to them very well and they feel feel taken care of and feel secure and they feel like there are police there, like uh, uh, as, as you said, you know, there were small numbers of refugees actually there because people would come and, and leave uh, the next day for their onward destinations. But there were eight police there at all times. It felt a very safe place. And there was fresh food and there was hot food and there was, you know, places to play outside for children. And in other places like Nadarzin in Warsaw, which was just, it was sort of like a massive warehouse that had been converted uh, very quickly into into a place that could be safe enough. I mean, it smelled of paint. There were there were areas that were clearly like still being that were still under construction, uh, but it, it was extremely depressing. There was no hot food. You know, you could go and, and microwave something. Um, there was no. NGO presence, so there was very little toys, there was no activities for children. It was a place where you felt sort of fearful for your safety, you felt very uncomfortable physically, there was nothing, uh, and it was seemed to be kind of run that way with the aim of, of encouraging women to simply move on. You know, it was not a place where you wanted to stay. And Khubyashov, the center near um, Shemesil, where you know, the first port of entry was very different. And and many people did stay there. Uh, they would stay a week, they would stay 10 days. Because also, you know, many women, families, you know, elderly people just simply decided to go back. Because, you know, elderly, there was a elderly woman who was like having a, a altercation with her daughter about where they would go. And the daughter said, no, I want to go to Spain because it's sunny. And the elderly woman said, no, we should just stay in Poland because it's close and then we can go home. Um, and, and elderly people sort of losing their independence in having gone through this, this sort of movement into Poland um, because they're, they're with their children uh, or they find that just moving around is simply um, is too difficult for them uh, and, and would go back. So staying in Poland for, for so many different types of refugees was, was attractive, but that's something that the Polish government simply felt it, it, couldn't, it couldn't accommodate, that the rest of Europe had to take on its responsibility. So many of these centers, um, Nadarzin, you know, looked like a place where children could easily be kidnapped. There were no guards at the front. No one asked you why you were there. You would go in and there would just be children, you know, playing in, in areas, you know, warehouse spaces. You could have simply easily picked one up and, and run out and, and no one would have really noticed probably. Unlike others where you had to have a, a wristband with a QR code and you had to scan in and you had to scan out uh, and it was and it was very monitored. So yeah, a sort of range of experiences that would, you know, propel women out leave Poland, don't stay here, there is not support for you, you're not welcome, to those that were, you know, the exact opposite. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. So you've talked about the the response from volunteers and from local government and from the 
the Polish state. But in terms of sort of larger organizations, is there any evidence of an EU presence, EU help of a UN presence there? The UN had arrived uh, and in a UN-like manner was <laughs> busy for weeks finding office space and setting up apartments for its staff and was was slow. Other international, so, so UNHCR, the Commission for Refugees, uh, UNICEF, you know, the relevant agencies were there and trying to scale up very quickly uh, on both sides of the border. They were well coordinated at least, but, you know, sometimes you'd be on a call with the UN cluster that was dealing with protection, um, women's security or, or another sort of displacement issue. And someone in Uganda would be joining the call, but they had been given, you know, the file for you know, a certain aspect of displacement, either inside Ukraine or, or outside. So very fragmented still, but but trying to move quickly. There was a point at which big aid groups and charities that, that typically do do a lot of what's called in the humanitarian world, the service provision in these situations, received massive amounts of, of money and, and donations, but they couldn't spend it because they were not they weren't set up. And of course, many um, function in a very bureaucratic way. And there's concerns about corruption in Ukraine. So sort of setting up processes that would be able to send sort of aid, aid funds and resources into places where there was some presence, but making sure that there was oversight over it. So, you know, the speed of what happened, I think, made it very, very difficult for any of the traditional kind of institutions that will step up and form a refugee response to get anything vaguely sort of comparable with what they they run in, in other places in the world where there's been big displacement crises. And the the sort of lack of an EU presence or an EU coordination was also very striking. It was really clear that the EU was slow to assess what it needed to do and, and to become involved. I think that's changing now, but... Yeah, striking that um, that it was really ordinary people for the first month and a half that were able to to make sure that there was anyone doing any of this stuff to help. Yeah, because certainly those numbers. I mean, the EU EU countries and politicians and the media like to make a big deal about the number of refugees coming to Europe and asylum seekers coming to Europe. But most of or a large part of the EU effort with organisations like Frontex and so on is about keeping people out. And of course, actually, the numbers of refugees and asylum seekers who come to Europe, to the EU, is tiny. I mean, you mentioned earlier someone on the call from Uganda. Presumably, that's because the person in Uganda has experience with coordinating processes to help huge numbers of refugees. So they know what they're, you know, they would have, have that expertise. And so this, for, for Europe, actually, to have genuinely large numbers of refugees arriving when the you know, on the on the southern and, and southeastern borders, and in Greece, that the that the response is either to, you know to not let people land or to put them essentially in prison camps when they do land. I mean, in a way, this again exposes the sort of sort of failures of, of EU response to to asylum seekers and refugees and and migrants' needs. Precisely, it is very much a response designed to to keep people out, to send them back. That's where. Clearly, the the resource, the resources, and the focus and the policy have all been directed at repelling rather than organizing and supporting. And in in many of the other places where there have been, you know, migration centers or migrant centers in Europe, that has been clearly to the the intention for them to sort of remain so deplorable 
that it will discourage people from coming at all. So actually a functional refugee transit hub or a functional refugee center that has adequate medical provision, adequate psychosocial resources, you know, conditions that are sanitary is not something that Europe has trained itself to do simply because it, yeah, as you say, hasn't wished to do that. But they're clearly, they're needed in Poland and Romania and, and on the countries which border Ukraine, but they're clearly also needed in, in Spain and in Italy and in Greece in the long term. So it'd be nice to think that, you know, one one way for the EU to respond to this is to think we need to change our practices on our borders, but it, it doesn't seem very likely. No, no, I think as as much of North Africa becomes more ungovernable, as the Sahel becomes, um, the conflicts in the Sahel region uh, seem to multiply and spread uh, and, and become more endemic, and, and the UN and, and France, of course, being sort of essentially asked to leave Mali. I think we see the horizon in the next 20 years for what migration will look like into Europe from certainly North Africa and, and the Sahel and East Africa will, I think, only dramatically grow. And you've, I mean, you've reported from refugee camps and centres elsewhere in the world and in the Middle East and so on. When you went to Poland, did you have expectations based on what you'd seen in, in Turkey and elsewhere? And and how did what you found compare to what you were expecting to find or to what you'd, you'd seen before? My, Because many of the displacement camps and internally displaced people's camps and such places that I've worked and reported on uh, over the years have been in contexts that are affected by terrorism and counter-terrorism. I suppose I have become quite accustomed to them being very securitized places. Actually, uh, for the first two days, I kept calling them detention centers instead of refugee centers until I sort of got that (laughs) tick uh, out of my vocabulary. So you know, a very intense level of security because of security threats either to a displaced population or by the population who is also displaced is something that I'm I'm quite used to seeing uh, Iraq and Syria in, in other places, uh, as you say. The complete lack of any security. So so having not intense security was was a shift and a sort of reminder of to what extent displacement crises in the last 20 years have been linked to the global war on terror. And for me, that was a sort of like the, the, the reality of having a massive refugee crisis of this proportion that wasn't terrorism linked is not something that I've encountered in the course of my working life. Uh, so that was, you know, just a, an observation that, that I, I had. But then, yeah, the complete lack of any security simply because this is a very specific refugee population. The fact that men cannot leave Ukraine means that women are traveling with families, with with elderly people. Uh, It is is a particularly vulnerable population. and, And that tends, you know, tends not to be the case in, in other displacement crises. You know, men can often leave, and so families, you know, will have all of the, the, the stresses and the difficulties of displacement, but at least there will, you know, at times be uh, a family unit. So the lack of security, given the, the vulnerability of, of women traveling alone, the, in the context of the risks we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, uh, was really striking. But also, I suppose, you know, the... I had not expected to see 
uh, and perhaps this is simply naive, but you know, the way that refugees are kept is very political in the end. You know, if they're, for example, in Lebanon, you know, there are refugee camps where four generations of Palestinians have grown up in homes that are sort of look makeshift. They look like they're homes for people to stay in for two weeks. And four generations of people have, have grown up in displacement, having left their homes in Palestine. And that's because Lebanon has, for decades, said this is not our problem. You know, the creation of this Palestinian refugee crisis is not our problem. We won't um, give them jobs. They can't go necessarily into our schools. And so it's it's very political how Palestinian refugees in, in Lebanon have, have been sort of kept at the utter margin of survival for generations. So sort of seeing the sort of political histories or the biographies of the conflict in the way that refugee areas or camps or centers uh, are organized is, is something that I've been really used to. Um, seeing that in a European country that is in the EU <laughs> um, and that has posters for watching films about Jesus and the life of Mary Magdalene, but no information about human trafficking, because it's very likely that that's a refugee center, for example, that's set up by an ideologically, you know, religiously very conservative part of that government, was startling to sort of see, even in a response that's, you know, has been so chaotic, and, you know, the government has been, you know, late to that, that this too would be a crisis where the politics of that setting will come to eventually, I think, uh, even more dominates how these these centres and areas are experienced by women. And looking ahead, presumably, there are not going to be four generations of Ukrainian refugees living in makeshift camps in Poland. I mean, it's clearly far from clear what's going to happen in Ukraine and how it's you know going to end, if it's going to end. But if people are starting to go back or to go elsewhere in the EU to find work. But it seems that the majority of people who have left want to go back and probably will go back. And even if large areas in the east of Ukraine end up being permanently occupied by Russia, large parts of Western Ukraine won't be. So there are other places within Ukraine where people can go. So in the long term, presumably the the crisis will in Poland will dissipate and also in the medium term presumably those slow moving inter- large international organizations will get their act together they'll find their office space and they'll be able to sort of set things up in a less chaotic way they they certainly will and i think it's right that many many ukrainians will continue to go back as the pattern of the war settles to some extent and and it does become evident that there will be areas, large areas of the West that, as you say, will be safe enough, especially for for those who find life, starting a new life um, in, in Europe, just too challenging. You know, LGBT Ukrainians in Poland, in other parts of, of um, Europe, in, in Hungary, you know, will we'll find it, I think, quite challenging to, to rebuild lives and, and kind of have the same... Um, you know, societal tolerance in Ukraine doesn't seem fantastic, but certainly better than than in those other places. You know, there were Roma families that were really at the very fringe of of the response. You know, people were not 
humanitarians, volunteers, you know, were not tending to them. They were sort of seen as exploiting the crisis coming across to sort of fill their sacks with, you know, free nappies and other foodstuffs and, and, and taking them back. So they just weren't really being tended to. People with disabilities who I think, you know, will we'll find that they've, it's harder to find accommodation, housing, sponsors who will support them. So there's a whole sort of different categories of people who I think will, will go back at the earliest opportunity. And then, as you say, though, in, in the medium term, the longer term, depending on what happens with the war, I think many will go back. But I think we're looking at a Ukraine that will be economically much less viable. Um, you know, if, if, if it's a country still with a sort of ongoing armed conflict, if sort of the most productive agricultural reason, regions are are part of those conflict theaters, uh, if the access to ports and that sort of southern ring of the country is is contested, you know, economically, what will be left of, of Ukraine to support such large numbers of people, it will be a little bit like Syria, where you have a massive kind of clumping of the Syrian population living in the northeast in a way that overwhelms that small area's ability to, to produce enough grain and food uh, and employment to look after. So I think it could be a really long-running you know, response where it, it does require these, these charities and these humanitarian groups in the UN who are right now dealing with an active displacement crisis to have to move into the kind of longer term humanitarian support and aid that we're used to seeing them provide in developing countries. So I think that's a real possibility too. And does the some really quite extraordinary energy and that local people in Poland and elsewhere were able to bring at the beginning of the crisis when these people arrived and you know, that really, in its way, quite positive response of ordinary people going out of their way to help? Is that going to be able to continue? Are people going to get tired? I mean, in a, in a sort of the crudest way that the kind of, you know, the attention of the world's media seems to be fading slightly from from Ukraine. And is that is there a similar fading of of attention and energy among the people who came out to help at the beginning? Or is, or is that continuing? Definitely in the town of Lublin that, is the sort of largest town closest to the border where I spent some time. The groups that were really leading the response feared that that would be the case. Um, there was, for example, uh, a, a sort of big gymnasium that the city had wanted to put aside to use as another refugee center um, or as a sort of processing center. And a group of parents, and this is before Easter even, so, you know, kind of still early days, parents in that, in that neighborhood kind of banded together and said, no, our children need to use this gym for exercise. And that's a priority. And they kind of organized and protested it. And the council gave in to them. So I think that that will eventually be the way in many. I mean, of course, this is an extraordinary war. In, in so many ways. And Poland in particular, you know, feels, I think, if they can be part of this response and help Ukraine defend, you know, they're, they're fending off the day when Russia is their neighbor, as one Ukrainian woman sort of told me. So I think it's, you know, the, the, the extraordinary nature of the war, Poland's very specific geographical proximity to, to what could unfold later, 
the sense of kinship with Ukrainians. I mean, there's been a lot of Ukrainian migration into Poland, um, you know, regions on both sides of the border where uh, everyone speaks both languages. So I think there's a lot to to kind of encourage and extend that kind of initial outpouring that we've seen, but also, you know, the the inflation and the economic realities that Poland faces like like the rest of Europe, uh, the the prices prices going up from from the rise in the cost of energy. And, you know, certainly there have been other contexts I've worked where a country really steps up initially, feels a kinship. Turkey, for example, with Syrian refugees. You know, they saw them as fellow Muslims fleeing a very brutal dictator, and there was a quite warm response at the beginning to Syrians in Turkey. But with time, as, you know, they became settled, they became rivals for jobs, they became you know, women, and, and so often there are more, much more women in, in these settings than men, then women became active in sex work or they became mistresses to men because they were trying to survive in, in, in tough economies, then really animosity grew. So, you know, for it to go by other settings, there is a point where that, that does set in. And I imagine that, that it might in Poland as well. But on the other hand, um, you know, it's, I think it's, given a sort of there's a sort of almost religious fervor to the to the response in Poland you know Poland is a very religious society and a lot of these charity groups are driven by kind of religious values to be doing this work so I think that's a strain in it that will will also endure thank you very much thank you so much too you can read Azadeh Moaveni's piece in the latest issue of the LRB, along with Neil Asherson on the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and Mimi Jang reporting from Shanghai. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and the music is by Kieran Brunt.